glad you're here. I was uh, gone last week, and it's so amazing to be back in this place, and I'm just reminded how blessed we are to have Micah and the band, how every week they bring worship here, and uh, just the beauty and the skill you guys worship with. Thank you so much. We are... And, and you don't even know what's in store. Just wait till the end of the service, and you'll be like, whoa, because we we're going to have some fun today. Also, I'm so glad my dad could preach last week. I mean, he still got it, right? Yeah? Yeah. It made me remember a time I was a young boy, and we were in a different building, but he was up here. I've heard my dad preach more than anybody else. I haven't heard anybody else, you know? And he was up preaching one Sunday, and mom had let me sit in the very back and play with my friend Alpin Badgett. And so I was back there playing with some Hot Wheels. He couldn't see me. He stops the service and goes, does anyone know where my son Daniel is? And I had to like stand up, you know, and go, mom said I could sit back here. And that, I bring that up because I want to say, hey, does anybody know where my dad is? Because <laughs> now I'm in church. Yeah. You see him, tell him to come in. We got a seat for him. <laughs> We are in the middle of this Exodus series, and I'm so excited about today. First service was already, there. it was just so moving, and God has something for you today as you track along. We're on this 40-year road trip of the children of Israel and these ancient Hebrews as they have been freed from slavery from Egypt, and now God is moving them with Moses. He's, God is a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He's leading them through the wilderness. And let's just go ahead and jump into Exodus 17, verse 1. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of Sin, and moved, that's, a, that's actually a place, a wilderness of Sin, and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. They come to a place in this wilderness journey where there's no water. Now, a few things to know. Moses knows this area. Remember when, for his 40 years when he was a shepherd out in the wilderness? And this is kind of the area that he was familiar with. And when you're, he knows some things. Moses knows when you're leading sheep through the wilderness, what is vital to the location that you choose to stop at? Water. Moses knows the area, and he knows water is important. So we have to ask, why would Moses, having known, having led a flock through this and now leading a bigger flock, why would he lead them to a place where there's no water? And there's a very simple answer. Because Moses is not leading. Remember, God is leading by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's leading them, and he's already shown that he's leading them around things and to things. We, if you remember correctly, he told Moses, I'm leading them away from the Philistines because they're not yet ready for war. So he led them away from danger. He led them to the Red Sea to show them his power to save. He is daily leading them through the wilderness to test their trust. And so we have to see that it is God who has led them to this place at this time where there is no water to see how they will respond. He wants to know if they'll trust him. He wants to know if the people will trust him with their needs. He's already shown, like, can, can you trust me with life crisis? Well, I, I split the Red Sea to save you. Can you trust me with your cravings? Well, I've sent manna, the bread from heaven. Can you trust me with your needs? Well, I've sent quail. And here they are thirsty, and, and, and thirst is different. Water is essential, isn't it? And it says, can, can you trust me with your essential needs? Can you trust me with the things that you need? So how do they respond? Verse two, so once more the people complained against Moses. Give us water, they demanded. Now notice they don't go to God. They don't even grumble to God. Instead they go to their pastor and grumble. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was gonna slip. 
They go to Moses and grumble. Mess that up. God wants his people to bring their needs to him, but they don't. They go instead to Moses. And Moses understands. He knows who's in charge. And so here's his response. Quiet. Why are you complaining against me? Why are you testing the Lord? And the word here for testing has a legal meaning. You see, when you bring someone to court and put them on trial, that's, that's what this means. Moses declares that people are putting God on trial. Instead of bringing their request to the only place or the person who could help them, God, they bring an accusation. Verse 3, but tormented by thirst, they continue to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Remember the generational um, slavery they were in, their children getting, working long hours, their sons being murdered. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us and our children and our livestock? And they ask the question they ask so many times. Did you bring us out here to die? Once again, as soon as they're lacking in their life, as soon as they face trouble or a challenge, they panic and they grumble and they begin to blame. What we're seeing here is that, that their faith is fragile. They want a God who gives them a trouble-free life. And when that doesn't happen, their faith gets tested and shaky. And I've seen and known that there are some people who come to Jesus hoping that, and thinking that Jesus will give me a trouble-free life. And when the trouble comes, it shakes our faith because our faith was in a God who would keep us from trouble, like them. See, they're, they're, looking, they're looking for a God that keeps them out of trouble, but instead, he's the God who's with them in the trouble and who resources them through the trouble. I mean, they could have gone to Moses and said, Moses, our God has shown himself faithful. Will you go to, will you go to God and, and ask him to give us water? Or even better, they could have gone to God himself and said, Yahweh, we thank you so much for freeing us from slavery and all you've done, but here we are without water. Would you please give us water? Instead, they go straight to Moses and grumble. And Moses does the correct thing. He goes to God. He takes this need to God. And Moses says, God, they're about to stone me. Like, they're so angry that their plan is to kill Moses and then go back to slavery and say, hey, can we get our old jobs back? That's their plan. Literally, to kill Moses. And when, see, when life gets hard, they've jettisoned their faith and they want to go back to their old life and their old sins that medicate their hurting heart. God has instructions for the situation. He's not caught off guard. He led them to this place to see what would happen. So he says this, the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Now the translation says, and many do, I will stand there before you um, by the rock. But the Hebrew clearly indicates God saying, I will be upon the rock. That, that Yahweh's presence, God's presence will be upon that rock. God is telling Moses to go, get, go to that rock, that God will be there, and Moses is to strike the rock. So Moses does this in the sight of the elders. He strikes the rock, and after it breaks, the, guess what? Water flows from it for all the people. God shows once again that he is faithful. Now, in Exodus 17, water pours from a rock to give life to the people. How could that have anything to do with Jesus? Now, I've talked so often in this church about, about Old Testament, Old Covenant, and New Covenant, and that we want to have the lens to see Jesus in the Old Testament. So, so think about it. How in the world does Jesus relate to a rock that is struck that water flows from it? Well, let's, let's, let's pause Exodus 17 and let's move thousands of years into the future to a Hebrew festival 
In John 7, verse 37, Jesus is at this festival and he has something to say about water. Track with me. Verse 37, on the last and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is shouting, the word crazo there means to shout or cry out, he's shouting about water at some festival. So let's ask ourselves, well, what's the festival? What's happening here? The festival is called the Feast of Tabernacles, or in Hebrew, Sukkot. And it's no small matter. God himself commanded and instituted that this be one of the three pilgrim festivals of the people where they would travel to Jerusalem, Leviticus 23, 42, and 43. God said, you shall live in booths or tents, temporary shelters, for seven days, seven-day festival. All that are citizens in Israel, everyone in the nation, should live in these booths, so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, so, so catch this. In John 7, Jesus is honoring Sukkot, which is the very celebration of what? What we were just talking about in Exodus 17 about people in tents, in booths. For seven days, they're supposed to get just a, just a taste of what it was like for their ancient ancestors who had to do that for 40 years. The children of Israel in Exodus 17, traveling through the wilderness, led by God, is what they're celebrating at Sukkot. Every family in Jerusalem, the pilgrimage, these families from even outside of Jerusalem would pack the city full and they would get a tent or a temporary shelter in their backyards or on their roofs. Uh, the pilgrims finding any place they could. And for seven days, it would be this national campout where everybody's out in temporary booths. And they did this to remind themselves of their ancestors in Exodus. The very Exodus 17 we were just in. But there's more going on at this, there's more going on at this festival than a national campout. There's more going on here than remembering this time and exodus of being in temporary shelters. It's also a week-long celebration of the provision of water. The water for the coming fall harvest. And so water is a big theme in this festival. I don't have time to tell you all the Old Testament references they would read throughout the week that refer to water flowing out of the temple, water flowing from Jerusalem, water flowing. The water theme was all throughout Sukkot. And there were, these, there were these huge ceremonies. There were these huge traditions. Remember, the city is packed to the, to the brim, and the amazing celebrations that were happening within it daily are, are amazing. And guess what's at the center of all these celebrations? You got it. Water. Now, so listen to some of this recorded writings. I want you to picture this in your mind as I read you some of the recorded writings of what it would look like on a Sukkot celebration. On the first day of Sukkot, a procession of priests would leave the temple and the people would line the streets and the priests, they had a golden cistern, a golden pitcher and they would go down and travel to the lowest place elevation of the city, the pool of Siloam. The people would press in to see because this is where the priest would gather water for the first celebration and he would gather water and he would hold it up and the crowd would begin shouting and singing. They would dip this golden pitcher, fill it full of water, and then began the real party as they would parade this cistern, this golden pitcher, from the pool of Siloam through the streets of Jerusalem up the hill to where the temple was. Now, the celebration during this parade was so intense that the water was carried with great ceremony and singing and shouting. 
it said that priests were around the water and they would be playing flutes while the pilgrims and people would be dancing along following it and running ahead playing their instruments, waving branches during the procession. Now, as this celebratory parade made its way toward the temple, the crowds were waiting there. It grew thicker and thicker. People were squeezing in, the vast numbers pressing in on each other, watching this procession of priests and this golden pitcher of water as it made its way up into the temple. Now, he, this priest with the pitcher, he was escorted by the throng as he entered the water gate towards the temple, and another priest at that entrance would blast on the shofar, the ram's horn, as they approached, and then they would start to approach the altar. Now, as he got closer, the whole celebration would just begin to erupt more and more as the crowd is cheering and it says singing with abandon. All around, they're dancing and they're singing and they're, they're playing instruments. The priest would climb the ramp and he stood near the altar with the pitcher of water in this golden cistern. Another priest would approach from the other side and this priest would hold a pitcher of uh, wine and they would wait there. And the crowd would begin to grow silent as the two priests would step forward toward the altar, one with water, one with wine. As the noise began to trail off from all these pilgrims and the voices fell, all eyes would be focused on the two priests and upon the altar. This was an incredibly sacred moment, just pregnant with anticipation. And in that hushed, hallowed, silent moment, the wine and the water were poured upon the altar Wine and water mixing together, flowing down the sides. At that moment, the crowd would erupt in a deafening noise as tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would begin cheering and it says shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, oh Lord, save us. They needed God and they pled, forgive us of our sins and send us the life-giving water for the harvest. Send forgiveness with the wine and send us the water. The wine poured out was a plea for God to cover their sins so that the life-giving water could flow in their country. This happened all the days of Sukkot. The celebration was incredible. One, one ancient um, sage, he said in the Hebrew Mishnah, it's written down there, he says, he who has not seen the rejoicing at the water drawing ceremony has never seen rejoicing in his life. Like if you haven't seen when they poured out, get that water out of there and they paraded up and poured out, you have not even seen rejoicing. Like you have not partied until you've Sukkot partied. They did that each day of the festival. But on the last and greatest day of the festival, the water ceremony was said to reach its climax. The crowds would, and the pilgrims would be at max capacity by now. They wanted to see this last one. The same parade would happen from the Pool of Siloam up through the streets, up the hill to the temple. And on this final day, the priests would circle the altar seven times with the water and a celebration and the singing. He would hold it. And it said that the celebration of this festival would rival anything you have ever seen. And on that final day of Sukkot, the great, called the great day of the feast, the two priests, after circling seven times, would approach the altar once again and that sacred silence would just That's where Jesus is in John 7. That's where we find him. John 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, 
That's where he is. He's at Sukkot. He's on the last day. He's on this last day of the festival. Jesus, he happens to be there. So he's part of, he's, he's somehow involved or around this parade, which means that he's, he's seeing the sounds. He, he is a Hebrew boy. He probably grew up seeing it and participating. He was there. He saw the priest holding the water. He saw the priest circling the altar. He saw the other priest likely holding the wine. And can I tell you what I personally believed happened here based on context clues? It doesn't say it, but I believe it. So I'm not saying this is it. I believe it was at that sacred, absolute silent moment when the two priests, and everybody's hushed, and the two priests are about to go forward. All eyes on the water. Everyone present, wondering, will God provide the water of life in the coming, for the coming fall? The holy hush upon hundreds of thousands around the courtyard. He's about to pour the water. The other priest about to pour the wine. And it's my belief that it was in that, that, that hushed, sacred silence. It says this, the next verse. Jesus stood and shouted in a loud voice. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Again, it says crazo. He cried out. He shouted out. And that moment of silence created around, centered around the water, Jesus stood and yelled, listen, if you're thirsty, come to me. I am the source. I am the fulfillment of the prophecy. I'm the living water. I'm the spring of the water of life. Can you imagine that moment? Have you ever seen a moment of silence ruined by somebody? And this is like after the mountain fair drum circle, there's this moment of silence and someone yells, Jesus! You're like, 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 Jesus just, can you imagine the jaw-dropping audacity in that moment of the sacred moment where he says, it's me, it's me, a whole nation yearning for the water, and Jesus goes, I am the water, if you're thirsty, comes to me, he cries out in that moment, and you know why I believe that? If you go to verse 44, they're furious with him and they want to kill him. They try to seize him. In verse 45, the very next verse, the, the guards came back and go, we can't find him. Like they, they, some, the religious leader said, go get him. He just ruined the greatest moment of the last day. And they couldn't get him. They're enraged. He declared himself the source of living water. The moment of the living water on the greatest day of the festival of Sukkot in front of all the people, all the pilgrims. So Jesus has a lot more to say about water, especially in John. Catch this in John 4, 13. Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So we see all this water imagery in Jesus, but, but what's, still, what's not explained is, and I know you're wondering, how does this connect to Exodus 17? How do we get there? Well, I want to look again to the, let's look again at the Sukkot water ceremony. Two priests, right? We looked at the water but the other ones are holding what? And if you know symbolism in the Bible, wine is the symbol of blood, especially sacrificial blood. So we have the representation of a living water being poured out on the altar, but that's for the Sukkot ceremony, but it's also blood. The pouring out of blood and water on the altar for the sins of the people. Blood and water together in one place so people were forgiven so they could receive freedom and grace of the coming water that season. Blood and water poured out on an altar for generation after generation after generation. Remembering the ancient of days when God provided for them there in the desert and in hopes that someday, as the prophet said, holy blood and water would flow from Jerusalem once again and set them free with the Messiah. So we have moved from Exodus 17, thousands of years to John 7. Now just let's just move a few years farther to John 19. 
Verse 33. Here we find that Jesus has already been beaten. He's already been nailed to a cross. He has already hung on the cross and he has already given up his spirit. He has said, it is finished and he has died. It's time to end the crucifixion and the soldiers are coming around making the rounds. It says this, when the soldier came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one soldier pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Jesus is struck and it brought forth a sudden flow, a flow of blood, a flow of water. It is at that moment that Jesus fulfilled what we read previously in Exodus 17 and many of the other prophecies in the Old Testament. What I want you to see today, and I'm going to build a case for this, is that Jesus is the rock of Exodus 17. The staff that Moses held is the, is the symbol of the authority of God's judgment and mercy. That staff the symbol of God's authority, had been used against Pharaoh and the Nile to pronounce judgment and had been used to pronounce mercy. God's authority of judgment and salvation. The staff of God's authority that had struck. In Exodus 17, that staff, the symbol of God's authority, judgment and salvation, strikes the rock and water flows. And Jesus, our rock, was struck by the authority of God's judgment and salvation against sin, to bring salvation. You see, our rock, Jesus, was broken for the people, and the life-giving water that he kept talking about, that he kept mentioning, it flowed from his spirit. You're like, oh, that's a reach. Let's see what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 10.4. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud as they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Jesus Christ. He flat out says Jesus was the rock that was struck by God to which the water flowed. And while it gave them water there in the desert for a short time, what did Jesus claim would happen when he was struck and the water flowed? Well, in John 4.13, he's referring to regular water. He says, listen, anyone who drinks from this well, this water will soon be thirsty again. But, any, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst again. It becomes a fresh bubbling stream within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus was the rock struck by judgment and salvation so that living water could flow from him to those who would receive him who then would enjoy everlasting eternal water of life. The water in the desert rock was struck so the people could have temporary water. The, the, the rock in the desert was struck to bring the people temporary water. The water from the rock that Jesus, as he was struck, it brings eternal water. Jesus is the rock that was struck so that we could drink from eternity. And here's something that goes a little bit deeper, and you have to see this. Exodus 17 was written weeks into their journey. Well, Something happens 40 years, almost 40 years later in Numbers 20. The people are still being led in the wilderness. Spoiler alert, okay? And guess what? God leads them to a place without water. And you'd think they'd go, hey, we've been here before. God, we're going to go back to you. You'd think in our lives when we have another a situation or circumstance or crisis, we'd go, hey, I've been here before. I'm going to go right back to God this time and not panic and worry. But what do they do? They get to a place without water, a crisis, and it says they grumble, and they say, why did you bring us out here to die? Same thing, 40 years later. Listen to what happens next in Numbers 20, 6 through 8. 
Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went to the entrance of the tabernacle, which we'll get to in the future, where they fell face down on the ground. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, you and Aaron must take the staff and assembly and assemble the entire community. Get all the people, get the staff and get all the people together. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out water. This sounds like, kind of like a Sukkot celebration of water. Speak to the rock, and it will pour out water. You'll provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and livestock. What did he tell Moses to do? Speak to the rock, not strike the rock. Why? Well, we'll get to why, but do you know what Moses did? In his frustration with the people, he walked over, and he just goes, he strikes the rock. Boom! He was told to speak to it, but he struck it. And God was not happy for that disobedience. In fact, that disobedience, Moses striking when he should have spoke, it kept Moses from being able to enter the promised land. And people have always asked, like, that doesn't seem that big. Why did he do that? Like, why does one little mistake like that keep him from the promised land? Why? Because Jesus is the rock. It says it. And he only needed to be struck once. Jesus on the cross only needed to be struck, crucified, killed one time. There's no need for Jesus to be crucified again and again and again in your life. Jesus paid the price once and for all. The water of life made available. There's no need for him to be crucified again in your life. So what does this, what does this mean? In your life, Jesus was struck on the cross, and at some point you may have come to faith in him. You may have come to faith to believe that he died and rose again as the son of God and he gave your soul the water of life. Life here on earth and eternal life someday. And the next time you find yourself running low on faith, let's say the next time you feel like your, your spirit is just parched and your faith is dry and you are thirsty for spiritual water, you don't go back and strike the rock again. You don't go back and get re-saved. You don't go back into the crucifixion. No, you don't do what, Mo you do what God told Moses to do. You don't strike the rock, you go speak with the rock. Moses should have gone and spoke to the rock, but he didn't. And if you come to know Jesus as Savior and you have a need, don't go back to the, don't go back to the crucifixion, but go to the one who has risen and go speak with the rock. That's why God didn't have Moses strike the rock a second time. Paul said that rock was Jesus. He wasn't to be struck a second time. He was to be spoken to. Here's the question today. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Is anyone spiritually thirsty in this place? Is anyone like these ancient people? Do you have somewhere in your life where you have great need, where you would cry out, if you leave me here, I'm gonna die? Do any of you have, are you thirsty because you have great need in your life? Thirst is a deep need. Does anyone have a deep need for freedom in their heart? Freedom from something or healing or, or hope or forgiveness? Do you have a deep thirst for God to move in your life? You know, some of you, you here or joining us online or on the podcast, you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior. You don't yet know him as the rock who was struck for salvation. That's the first step. So that even when your body leaves this earth, your spirit is eternal with him. Is anybody thirsty for salvation today? Because for some of you, I've been praying for you that this would be the day where you put your faith in Jesus as Savior. And so what I want to do is take a moment for us to pray together. All to pray together. And if this is for you and you want to take this moment to say, I'm going to pray to receive Jesus as my Savior for the first time. You believe in your heart and pray this with your lips. Say, Jesus, Jesus. 
I believe you died and rose again. You were struck from my saving. I give you my life, give you my sin, my past, present, and future. I believe you are the Son of God. Holy Spirit, fill me. Amen. Some of you are here today and you've, you know Jesus as your Savior. You've known Jesus as your rock. You've known that, that he was struck for your salvation. And because, but, but, but because of your sin or your lifestyle, or maybe you've wandered, or you just haven't, you, you haven't communicated with, talked to God in so long, you come in here today and you say, my faith is parched. My soul is dry. My passion is low. I'm thirsty. I need you, God. There's no water flowing from my life to others. So you need to come to Jesus as well. But not for salvation, but for refreshment and refilling. Not to strike the rock, but to speak with the rock. To tell him your gratitude for salvation he's given you. And to tell him the thirst that you have. And so as we take communion, not yet, but you're getting ready to. Jesus says this in John 7, let anyone who is thirsty, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, whether for salvation or after salvation for refilling. So during our communion today, I want you to take a second, ask God to forgive you of anything you need to ask his forgiveness for, and then thank him for his sacrifice. But then I want you to tell him, I want you to speak with him as the, as the, the one who gives you fresh water and say, here is my need. I, I need you to move in my life. I need you to move in my marriage. I need you. I am thirsty for you to, to, to move in my heart and my faith in a new way. Are you thirsty today? Are you thirsty? Jesus is the rock, not just for those ancient people, but for you here today. So what I want you to do is to take some time today and speak with him. And then tomorrow do it again. And you will find that water of life will fill you daily to refresh you, restore you, and build you.